With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's virtual program with Inforum and the Commonwealth Club program. My name is Valerie Coleman Morris. I'm your moderator. It is my pleasure to introduce Anna Malika Tubbs, author of The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. A little background about Anna. She is an educator and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. She's currently pursuing a doctorate in sociology at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. That's where she also earned a master's degree in multidisciplinary gender studies. Just a reminder again, if you would like to ask Anna a question, please submit those in your YouTube chat or comment section on Facebook. Anna, welcome. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you so much for that introduction and for joining me in conversation on my virtual book tour. It means the world. Well, I want you to consider me your let's say your conversation partner. I get to do what your audience would love to be able to do, and that is to ask questions and to have a chat and the opportunity to chat with you, so. I'm excited, it's gonna be a great hour. Thanks to everyone also for tuning in. Everybody get comfortable, Anna and I just wanna chat. There's not a formality in this. In fact, the way I'd like to start, each chapter of your book begins with a really powerful quotation. It's one that sets the tone for the narrative to come. So in the spirit of that, I'd like to start this with a quotation that I think describes the opportunity that your book offers to your listeners. And that quotation is, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. What motivated you to look at these three mothers of the civil rights movement who were known, they were mentioned, but they were definitely background to their famous sons. Yeah, it's a great first question. These three mothers in so many ways have been erased from our record and our history. And it's really a crime. It's the same crime that happens when any black woman's story is erased. It's similar to what Margot Lee Shetterly was trying to correct with hidden figures and highlighting these black mathematicians, female mathematicians that were essential for NASA. And so it's similar to what I'm doing with these three mothers. These three women were essential parts of our community and parts of our society and our history, even before they had their sons. They were creators, they were activists, they were writers, they were instrumentalists and talented in their own right. And then beyond that, they also birthed three of the most important men in history. And raised them, they followed their own passions and made sure that their sons could follow their passions as well. And there's such a direct link between all three of the mothers and what their sons were able to accomplish for the world. 
I started researching them specifically because I knew I wanted to join others who were correcting the erasure of black women, but I also had a limit on how much time I was going to have in my PhD program. That's when I came up with the idea of starting with someone famous and someone who was hidden by that fame, hidden by that bright light, and was kind of waiting in the shadows to be discovered. And I just fell in love with each of these mothers' stories. Well, you know, I think some people, maybe many people think Malcolm, uh, Martin, James, they were just kind of born ready. You know, they were just born ready to conquer the world. But we need to talk about more about the women who birthed them and guided them and influenced them. So let's talk very specifically. Let's start with Alberta Camp. That sounds great. And I mean, it's something we recently celebrated MLK Jr.'s MLK Jr. Day, which celebrates his birthday. Credit Scott King made sure that this became a national holiday. Um, but it's something that's quite funny. If we're going to celebrate his birth, we certainly should think about the person who birthed him. Like you said, he didn't just pop out of nowhere saying, oh, nonviolence sounds really great. <laughs> um, but instead, he was birthed by Alberta King, who was born to two parents who made Ebenezer Baptist this church that was this beacon of hope um, in the civil rights movement and the movement that even came before the civil rights movement. And they believed that faith was not faith without social justice, that the church needed to meet the needs of its members, that it needed to play a role in progressing the fight for Black lives. And they did so through boycotts, through marches. They joined the NAACP. And so this is how Alberta is raised. She joins their work as well, right alongside them as their only surviving child. They make sure that she has access to education. They make this a priority so that she also can join them in their fight. And then I can talk more about her. Of course, the book is filled with this. So I don't want to give too much away. But even her... Oh, sorry, even, No, no. I was just saying we aren't going to give things away because there's so much here. You could just never run out of things to give. But let's just let's just introduce each of the mothers so that we can then have uh, a better idea of each of the women that you're about to discuss. What about Louise Little, born in Grenada? Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to even her history of the community in which she was born. She has this history of learning about Carib Indians on her island who fought against European colonization um, and even said that they would rather jump to their death than bow down to their oppressors. She also carries with her her West African ancestry and stories of fighters who again are fighting their enslavement and doing whatever it takes to stand up for their rights. So she carries that with her as she joins this Marcus Garvey Pan-Africanist movement um, to make sure that the message of Black independence and Black self-sufficiency is being spread throughout the United States. So she has this path from Grenada to Montreal before she ends up in, in the U.S. And as we learn more about her, I mean, she couldn't even be silenced in her own home. You tell stories about uh, the feistiness of her, the warrior-likeness of her. But let's get to Burtis before we get deeply into all three. Burtis Baldwin, she lived and taught forgiveness. It was like, no matter what, no matter the pain. You have to see love. You have to see light. This is something that came up over and over again with the family members I was able to interview and the letters that I was able to read and gain access to, that this was the lesson she wanted everybody to carry. 
love and light and forgiveness because you could not hold on to the hatred. You could not hold on to the pain. I think it comes as a result of her losing her mother when she was born. She was born into tragedy, born into pain, and needed to find a way to still live life and to still find her faith and her optimism. Um, in her relationship with her husband, we know that he's abusive. James Baldwin talks about his abusive stepfather quite a lot in his writing. And she wants to help her children to still see love, to not hold hatred even against him. And they witness how much pain he causes her. So her life is is just a testimony to what you can do if you can hold on to love. My, and she even, as you explain in your book, talked about how she wanted him to go and see his At the stepfather. very end of his life, yes. Even though he knew all of the sadness and hurt. I he think he, she also really knew she saw beyond that initial pain, that initial hurt. And she knows that her son will not ever be liberated if he can't find forgiveness before his stepfather passes away. So she says you need to go and forgive him, not only for him, but for yourself so you can move forward. And James Baldwin uses this as an example of thinking about the way we need to forgive what's happening while confronting the darkness, not avoiding the darkness, not avoiding the pain. We know James Baldwin was so direct in his criticisms. He was not hiding from anything, but he was also aware that we needed to arrive at a place that witnessed light and witnessed love. The mothers, they were born within six years of each other. The sons within five years of each other. Anna, could you describe the times and circumstances um, and what were the similarities and the differences in the mother's experiences? The biggest thing that I really did want to celebrate in this book is the nuance and the diversity of Black womanhood. It was so crucial to me. I talk a lot throughout the book of the categories that people try to push Black women into, depending on the different stages of their life and the different decades and what was the latest way to insult Black women. I talk about the Jezebel, the Mammy, the Matriarch, the Welfare Queen, the Strong Black Woman trope. And challenge it by saying, look at Louise, look at Bertis, look at Alberta. None of them fit neatly into this. They were challenging it day in and day out to assert their humanity that we could not be boxed in. So their differences are definitely celebrated. Um, the similarities that come up are primarily because they were all three Black women in this time where, you know, Jim Crow law is reigning supreme um, and in different ways outside of the United States. Louise is facing this in Grenada as a result of it being a colonized island. And so she sees what it feels like, and she feels that every single day that pain of being judged for being a Black woman, um, and this is what wants her, helps her to want more for herself um, and for her own descendants and for her family members. So all three of them are responding to what happens if you're a Black woman in the early 1900s, a little Black girl, I should say, sorry, they're not women until a little later, um, but they see even this depiction of children that are pickaninnies and akin to animals. And their Black people are put on postcards running away from alligators towards watermelon and chicken. These very dehumanizing representations of who they were. Um, and their parents are able to say to them, you are, you are worth dignity. You are worth respect. We're going to prioritize your education. We're going to take whatever risk we, we need to so that our daughters can see beyond what the world is telling them they are. And that's something they carry with them as they raise their own children. As they raise their own children. Anna, you birthed a book and you, and you conceived a baby boy um, while you were studying and researching. How, I remember you told me that, yes, your little baby was on your shoulder 
he had this journey with you. How did this journey help you shape your pregnancy? In addition to what I know is very important to you, which is your dedication to body, mind, and spiritual wellness. It was an epic journey to find out I was expecting my son while I was doing this research. You know, I'm a Black feminist scholar. As you mentioned in my intro, I have a master's in multidisciplinary gender studies. So part of it also was very worrisome. I was well aware of the dangers of having a child if you're a Black woman in the United States. Regardless of your income or education level, you are more likely to die in pregnancy or childbirth um, for many different reasons, but the primary one being that the system is built on even experimenting on the bodies of black enslaved women and saying that we were more akin to animals. And we see remnants of that today, that people don't believe us, that we feel pain, that something is wrong. Um, and so it's a part of also making sure that we're being heard and listened to. So I was well aware of that fear as well. And I write about that in the introduction. Of course, I was excited. Um, of course, I was looking forward to meeting my child. I didn't know what his sex was at the time. We left that a surprise. Um, but I had a feeling because I was like, well, I'm writing this book. It'd be quite funny if, <laughs> if I have this son. Uh, but it was, it was um, a journey. And the three women helped me through that fear. They helped me through the worry. They're examples of women who were well aware of their time. They were well aware of the dangers. Um, but they also stood up for themselves. They didn't just let it happen. And they were standing up for the people around them. So I knew, one, I was going to become even more of an advocate to speak against what was happening to Black women in our country and what still is happening. But two, I was also going to find myself some advocates. I had three doulas next to me at the hospital when I gave birth three women of color who I knew were going to speak for me in moments when I felt like I could not. And it allowed me to have that power. So studying these three women in so many ways makes me see my power, my influence, and they helped me through and they continue to help me on my motherhood journey. The motherhood journey, indeed. I am at the grandmotherhood journey, which is just this other glorious part of life. But your little, your son, He's now, he was He's a year. 15 months now. Yeah, good memory. Yeah, a year in October. Oh, my. Tell us about your nuclear family, your mother, your father. Do you have siblings? Yes. So my mom and dad, uh, just wonderful examples of people who allowed me to understand my voice and the power of my voice. They raised us with the privilege of traveling around the world. We were in places like Dubai, Estonia, Mexico, Sweden. And in each of these places, my mom was advocating for women's rights, um, children's rights. She was always speaking to the person that was being ignored or being oppressed. Um, and it was really important to her that we see her doing this work and continue to have her passion even while raising three, of, three children. So I have an older sister and an older brother who are mentors of mine and always have been. Um, both just so incredible uh, supporters and just, I mean, talented in their own rights. I had really big shoes to fill, but they always supported me on my journey. And um, I love them so much. If they're all listening, I just want to give them a quick shout out. I appreciate that opportunity. And then not to leave my dad out, of course, um, he is this incredible scholar, always had this brilliant mind and made sure that I knew that I was inheriting that from both him and my mom. You know, he would say things, he's West African Ghanaian, I'm very proud of our West African ancestry. And he would say things like, you know, 
I'm proud of you, Anna. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, American parents will just say that. He's like, I say it when I mean it. <laughs> I'm proud of you. You're doing important work. Uh, when I got good grades or whatever it was that I, I cared about, they both allowed me to be curious and ask questions about the world. And I, I owe them everything um, from all of the different experiences that they, they afforded me. And you are biracial. Explain the dynamic of that, and especially with your book and your celebration of Black women, Black mothers, and yet your mother was the one who helped to show you the world. Yeah, absolutely. I have a white mother. She's not a Black mother, but I actually was saying this yesterday on an interview that she has Black children. There's something that's politicizing about having Black children, no matter what your own identity is, because you see how the world, you become very aware that the world does not see your children in the same light that you do. When you're holding your child with you and you're saying, this is the most incredible being in the world and I want everything for them. In the United States, if this is a black child, we're well aware that as soon as they leave our doors, they're going to be treated completely differently. We see it on TV constantly. We read it in newspaper articles. And so my mom was very well aware that she was the mother of three black children. She wanted us to be very educated on that um, and also to feel empowered. She's an example of an ally. And I often use her when I speak about allyship and my diversity and um, inclusion and consulting because she's white, but she tried her best to make sure that we you know, never felt like she was going to tell us how to feel about the world. She tried to sit next to us and tell us or ask us how we felt about what was happening, um, made sure we knew that it wasn't okay for us to be treated differently because of this. And, you know, even when we talk about like stereotype threat, for instance, I was never even aware of it. Both of my parents were very clear that we were excellent and we were going to thrive. Um, and they just allowed us to have them be very proud of being black. It wasn't even, I think a lot of white parents with mixed children sometimes feel that they can't talk about that diversity or they maybe don't feel well-versed enough to do so. My mom never hid from that. Um, and she was very open to making sure that we knew our history as well. I share the, the travel gene that you have. I'm an Air Force kid, Air Force brat, as people would say of us. And being made um, a global citizen early is so critically important to all people, but certainly I think to women. That we have to be able to, you know, find our power and our ability and our assurance and our community in order for us to be able to see the world as well. I think that's huge. You told me that uh, author Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote The Warmth of Other Suns, which is, of course, about the great migration of uh, Black people from the South across the country, and then her most recent book, which is Cast, which is about how, how should I explain it, how America today and throughout history really has been shaped by a very rigid hierarchy of human rankings. You said she inspired you. Tell me more. I absolutely love Isabel Wilkerson's work. I mean, there's so many different scholars and authors that I could give shout outs to in my own journey um, who have opened doors for me in academia and beyond. Um, but Isabel Wilkerson, Specifically, even in relation to this book, there's a couple of different things that are that are in common, and I felt very inspired by her. Number one, that she makes it so clear that the Black American experience 
is the American experience. Without understanding Black history, you can't understand where we are as a country. And it's crucial that everybody study this and understand that. She's earned that Pulitzer Prize through and through. Um, and cast is, is, you know, no different than that. She's giving us work that helps us to understand where we are today by using history. And then secondly, you know, maybe more technical one that she brought three different beautiful stories together as she talks about the Great Migration. And you feel so connected to something that we might have known about in history, but not really fully considered the human experience behind it. And when you hear these three different experiences because of the different places that the three go to and what they encounter and their own level of education and resources they're able to acquire and the different challenges that are in their paths, it made me really excited to think about approaching my book in that same way that I could find these intersections between three different people, um, but also speak to those similarities. And yeah, she's an incredible inspiration for me. It would be such an honor to meet her someday. She's magnificent. I did have the privilege a couple of times uh, when she was actually at seminar with the National Association of Black Journalists. And she came and presented and it was standing room only, of course, as it should have been. Um, who was your book written for and who should read it? Yes, I was carrying a lot of different people with me as I wrote this book. First and foremost, this is to celebrate Black women 100%. This is to say we're here, we're proud, um, I see you, and hopefully you see me, and let's celebrate each other. So it's all about Black womanhood. I'm also here to celebrate moms, and not just biological mothers, those of us in society that are caretakers, that have these, you know, more feminine qualities that we often say are weak, but instead are much more powerful and influential than we've deemed them to be those of us that are teaching and raising those around us it's to celebrate all of us who perform that work day in and day out who deserve more recognition and more celebration um, and who i believe are, are being ignored and I, I don't find that to be okay especially now when we're talking about covid19 our essential workers are for the most part day in and day out doing mothering kind of work and i want to call attention to that and Thirdly, this is for activists. I see Burtis, Alberta, and Louise all as these activists in their own right. I'm not sure they would call themselves that. I think Louise would have for sure, but the other two I don't think would have seen themselves that way. But when I read their lives and talk about their work and see the different ways in which they inspired change and pushed people to, like you said at the beginning, quote, change their perspective on everything that was happening and helping them see the world through their eyes, I see that as activism, and I think so many of us today who are participating in the movement in different ways can find motivation in their life work as well. Do you think any of these mothers, of these three mothers, uh, felt that their approach to parenting was radical? You know how some, you know how people can sometimes say of Black women, she's too this, she's too strong, um, she's too radical, that's too aggressive. Did they see it as radical? That's a great question. I think that they were loving their children and raising them and the way they felt was right and appropriate. And I could see Louise Little perhaps knowing that she was being, I don't know if she would use the word radical, but that she was directly challenging 
um, and very like physically challenging white supremacy. And she wanted her children to see her do that. You know, even in Malcolm X's autobiography, it starts with the story of her standing up against the Black Legion, which is a white supremacist KKK type group. And she's, you know, just confronting them, even though she knows she could die in that moment and no one would have suffered any kind of consequence from hurting her or her children. Um, but she's teaching them, this is what I want you to do. And I think maybe people could have easily told her that was dangerous. Um, <laughs> you maybe should have protected your kids. Instead, she said, this is my way of protecting them from the idea that I should bow down to these kind of crazy white men. Um, but instead, I'm going to stand up and show them who we are as a people. You had touched on this a little earlier, and so I, I wanna now come to address it directly. How did these three mothers manage and live with the abiding fear about their son's safety? And that's the major question, but I'm asking it also of you and other black mothers of black sons given today's environment and circumstances. How do you manage the fear and what guidance can be derived from knowing how these three women did? A central part of this book is that they are human beings. You know, we forget that these sons were humans. We think about them as these figures and we don't think about day in and day out they were loved, and when they were hurt, they were deeply missed. When they were killed, they were deeply missed. But even when they were away doing their work, this was really hard for their families to, to know that they were risking their lives on behalf of their nation and in so many ways were being misunderstood. Even MLK Jr., who everybody you know adores now, was considered radical in his time. And so the mothers face that, they confront that. Um, they are very real and vulnerable, at least in the way that I read their actions and their you know, desire to let their family know that they were worried. Um, MLK Jr. was well aware that his mother was worried. He talks about this in some of his letters and even in his autobiography um, put together by Professor Claiborne Carson. Um, but he speaks to how he knew his mother was worried. She even had to, you know, the doctor made sure she stayed home for a while because she was so afraid of things, more things happening to him um, after their house was bombed and all of these different things were happening. So I find that to be something that is so crucial because she's not saying I'm this superhero woman who doesn't have feelings. You know, so often black women are described this way. Wow, how strong you are that you can go through this pain. And it's something I mentioned earlier when we're talking about childbirth, you know, that pain is real. We feel it. And we need to stop celebrating Black women for something, somehow having a super supernatural ability to make it through pain and instead say, what can we do so that these painful moments no longer happen? As a Black mother, of course, it makes me concerned for my child, boy, girl, whatever gender, that something could happen to them because of the color of their skin. And I also am committed to changing these systems. This book is a part of commenting on what is still in place today that could have made life easier if we had alleviated that burden for Alberta, Burtis, and Louise. I don't want to just congratulate and celebrate them because of their perseverance. I want us to use this as a lesson for how we move forward as a nation. Your message is we matter as mothers. That Black mothers are mothers to the world. In fact, I have a quote, look at our history and all the babies we've raised, our own 
and other peoples. It's an erasure. That's what you called it in the book, an erasure of the contribution that Black mothers, Black women have given. That causes you pain. It caused me pain as I read the book. It is painful. It's painful. It is something that I think more of us are hurt by, but we're not, we don't feel that we're able to speak it. I think it's different. We have so many different cultures in our Black community, so I'm not trying to reduce experiences, but I think many of us have been taught that humility and modesty is very crucial to our identity. And so you have so many Black mothers who are very willing to do everything for everyone else and then never receive credit for it. And I find that to be just not okay. It's something that we have to focus on. Even as Black women, we have to be more willing to say, yeah, I did that. <laughs> that took me effort and time. Don't put yourself in the background voluntarily. <laughs> Acknowledge your value. Exactly. And even for their kids to know, no, you didn't just do this on your own. This is something that I worked hard at. This is something that I was intentional about. So I want this book to also inspire more Black women to tell our stories. To so You can be humble 100%, but you also can receive credit and the recognition that you deserve. I think that's crucial for people to see us as the human beings that we are and to stop seeing us as some kind of superhero that doesn't need any kind of intervention or help. Um, but beyond that, it's about others recognizing the work that we're doing, seeing us doing the work and celebrating us for it, but helping us, walking the journey with us, um, thinking about the policies that we could change that could help alleviate our pain, thinking about pushing for a guaranteed income, pushing for childcare that is universal and of quality, pushing for gun laws to finally be in place that will protect us and protect our children, thinking about mass incarceration and the way that Black women are carrying this burden financially for our entire country when our loved ones are being put behind bars. This needs to change. Or even domestic violence numbers are so high in Black communities because we don't have someone to call who is not a police officer who might end up killing the person that we may need to help, or even our loved ones who have mental health disorders, we don't have someone to call that won't come and hurt them. All of these are crimes against our humanity, and these are the things that we can change. It's tangible. Fighting for social justice is something that you have in common with the three mothers. You were first lady of Stockton, California. Your husband, Michael Tubbs, was the 79th mayor. From 2017 to 2021, Alberta, Louise, and Burtis's husbands were all Baptist preachers. Uh -huh. The influence of the men who we choose to have in our lives. Speak to that, because you did a lot of work uh, in your role as First Lady of Stockton in looking at women's rights and assessing how we are. Tell me more. I appreciate that question. I think there's so many different intersections in all of the work that I've done, and sometimes it can feel quite uh, spread out, but they all relate somehow. Uh, yeah, I think part of even why I wanted to write this book and focus on those that were being erased is that I personally felt very erased in my husband's journey. When we met we were an undergrad. People knew us very separately. You know, I was president of our Black Student Union. He was president of our NAACP. We came together through social justice, and we had our own separate identities. So I felt very erased when I moved to Stockton initially because people saw me as his partner, and that was it. 
I didn't have an identity of my own. People would call me a trophy wife to my face, um, would say multiple different things that really indicated they didn't think I had a mind of my own or passion of my own. Um, even little things like, you know, they would say, how can you guys afford this house? Michael must have to work two jobs versus assuming that I have the ability to earn money. It's, I have a whole, I'm going to write a whole book about that someday because it's, it's been very interesting to be someone's political partner since I was 19 years old, very young. I'm still very young, but I started this really early and have quite an interesting perspective on it. But I knew from the beginning when he did become mayor that I wasn't going to just be arm candy. I wasn't just going to go to events and shake hands and smile. I wanted to bring my own expertise to the work that he was completing here in his city um, and kind of also wanted to represent the city for myself, that if I was going to be the first partner, that there was something I could learn and also teach. So I spent two years teaching and I also was a college counselor for three years that made me, allowed me to connect with our youth. And that was very important to me. But I also produced the first status of women report on the women of Stockton. I've always believed, and it's something that my mom taught me through her own work, that if women are doing well in a community, then your community will do well. It cannot be separate of gender. It cannot be separate of our mothers. It cannot be separate of our caretakers. We need to focus on women and mothers. And in Stockton, a third of our households with children under the age of 18 were being led by single mothers. And it's something we really didn't know until we produced this report and did the research. So if we weren't focused on this population, nothing was going to change. Um, so I have been really proud of the work that I've been able to do here. It's been really cool to see the journey and more people understanding who I am. I've been very outspoken about it. You know, going back to what we were saying before, Black women need to tell our stories. And so when I'm asked to speak at events, I always tell my story. You know, I say it very upfront. You guys underestimated me and <laughs> many people reduced my identity. And I see that I'm not the only one who's experiencing that. Women of color experience this constantly. So when we're looking about what, at what's happening in our nation, um, more people are paying attention to black women right now than I would say maybe ever before. We're focused on Stacey Abrams. We're excited. She was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize that she so deserves. The other black women who worked alongside her to ensure Georgia um, and give us the, the whole country a chance for the next four years, our Vice President Kamala Harris. So it's a time now to, again, not just celebrate Black women for our strength, but to say, yes, we acknowledge everything you've done for our country, all of the babies you've raised in these, you know, very physical and literal way, literal and kind of metaphorical ways. And what can we do now to make sure you can continue this work while not having to constantly fight against those who don't believe you or listen to you or hear you. Anna, I'm getting questions, uh, some questions from the audience, so I'm going to start asking them. People fear what they don't understand and hate what they can't conquer is a statement by Andrew Smith. How do you think this related to Black women in general? That's interesting. I've never heard that quote. I... I can say that I think many people believe that if we don't study black women, for instance, and if we don't tell their stories more often and we don't present us as the diverse people that we are, um, this is how we continue to get reduced. People don't know enough about us. I mean, maybe they're fearful. And I can see that hatred coming in to wanting to conquer this person who continues to persevere 
no matter what is thrown their way. Um, I could see all of that being really relevant to this conversation and to our experiences. Um, but I also think we can change that perspective. Um, things that we don't understand don't have to be fearful. And it's something that we're taught to be afraid of the things that are different. Children aren't born that way. Oh, you, t you tell a couple of stories in the book about, well, Martin Luther King Jr., Tell, wasn't that a, him and his friends and all of a sudden the friends didn't want to be around? Please just give us that snippet. This is something that MLK Jr. talks about a little bit in his autobiography, that he had these friends. They were, they were I guess, the owners of the corner store. Um, their children were friends with him. These were white children. Um, but they got to a certain age where the parents said, you no longer can spend time together. You know, now that you're starting to become teenagers, um, this is the reality of the world. You know, Martin is below you and really is more akin to, you know, being an animal. I don't know what their exact words were, but basically he's not good enough to be your friend and he's not your comrade. So this is taught. I don't believe it's human nature. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so we could get other, <laughs> other people into this debate, but that we're taught to fear the things that are different. Um, it's not something that comes naturally to us. And we're taught to compete with other people and say, oh, if they're, if they're winning, then I must not be. This is a very white supremacist way of looking at things, that if somebody else has rights, I'm losing something through that. That's just not how the world works. And we need to change our mentalities around that, saying, okay, if a black woman is asking to be recognized and be celebrated, that's not to take away from anybody else's rights or anybody else's um, what they deserve to have. We're just asking for that basic humanity and recognition. And I hope more people can start to see the world differently than that quote um, would, I guess, insinuate. Maybe they'll change the way they look at things. They will read your book and will be inspired to do that. Here's another question. Has the awakening that much of America has undergone in the last year made you more hopeful for the future? Any thoughts about it? Definitely. I'm very hopeful, honestly, each year in the U.S. I think many of us focus on the terrible things that can happen. And I think it's important, again, that we confront that. Very Going back to what I was saying with James Baldwin and Virtus Baldwin, that we, we see that darkness and we're clear about it. But also, if I think about myself as a Black woman in the United States, where would I go back to, you know, this notion of, like, what was better Never was it better for me to be a black woman in the United States. So every year, I think our country gets more hopeful, um, primarily because we continue to do the work that we need to do to transform this nation. And more and more people are kind of joining that movement and that mentality that we can make change, that we can all have rights without feeling like somebody else is going to or I'm going to suffer because somebody else is doing well. So I think each year gets more and more optimistic, but I am an optimist. So I think when other people say, oh, no, we're regressing or we haven't come that far, that's not true. We've come very far. That's just my opinion. And we're going to continue to progress as a country. I also try to remind everybody that the United States is an extremely young country. You know, when I, I go to the University of Cambridge for my PhD, and it was founded in like 1209, 1209. <laughs> so our country is really a baby country. And a lot of our history is very recent history. And we've made very rapid change considering that. Uh, and we're just going to continue to do that if all the right voices are heard and um, we'll continue to push forward.
you know, I'm I'm very fond of saying as as my husband would tell you, as my grandson, the men in my life would say, I remind them that the strength that they find in us is something that will take the next generation forward because you just the stamina with which these three women live their life says to us, even though we are in the midst of some very serious and dangerous times in this country, that we cannot be defeated in our need to be valued and recognized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is an honoring of what they did for us to say we can keep going uh, and we can face these challenges and acknowledge how far we've come. If you had an opportunity to uh, ask each of them a question, what would that question have been? What would you have asked Alberta? I have so many questions I would have asked them, <laughs> but I'll try to choose just one for each. With Alberta, I would have, I would have wanted to know how she felt about not being able to teach once she got married. There was a law in place, this marriage bar that kept married women from certain jobs and she had this passion of becoming a teacher she'd gone to college for this she had a teaching certificate she was about to start her career as a teacher uh, when she fell in love with her husband and chose instead to teach but you know more informally with her uh, music students and with her own children and again tutoring her husband so I'd be curious to hear about her opinion of why this was okay, why she felt that this was the decision she wanted to make, because it was one that she she did say at one point that becoming a mother and becoming a wife were the greatest honors of her life. And I also want to celebrate that. I think we so often look at motherhood as if it's sort of this like second-class citizenship or that as professional women, we can't also be proud of being wives and mothers. And I, I don't think that that's the world that they envisioned for us or that even, you know, feminists envisioned for us. There's so many different ways. It's that we want to celebrate choice and we want to celebrate difference. And this is a choice that she made. So I'd be curious to hear more about her opinions around that. Oh, goodness. With Louise, it's all about how she confronted her fears and how she balanced, you know, being brave while also knowing that she was risking her life on a daily basis. So how does she make that decision to be brave no matter what? I think Audrey Lord talks about this a lot where she speaks to fear is real. You're going to experience fear, but whether you're afraid or not, people are still trying to destroy us. So what are you going to do with that fear? Are you going to let it stop? You're going to let it let you, you know, continue to push forward and be motivated um, to somehow find a way past it. And I think that that reminds me so much of Louise. I think she was aware of how dangerous everything was, and I'm sure she felt some fear, but how did she make the decision to still stand up for herself and for her community? And I think it's important to just let people know, you've detailed this so much in the book, with regard to the 25 years of her life that she lived institutionalized. And then the 25 years of her life that she lived after she was released, but after her son had been born. Yeah. This is something that is so emblematic of a Black immigrant woman's experience in the United States, being completely misunderstood, facing a bunch of attacks back-to-back, um, racism, and then being put 
behind bars and having someone make a decision for you. So with Louise Little, you know, like I said, she was this outspoken activist. Um, her husband was murdered by a white supremacist group. It's not clear who exactly did this, but he was found shoved under a streetcar. Um, Louise is brought to the hospital to identify his body as he's bleeding to death. And she goes home and still has seven children to raise on her own. Um, and before she's institutionalized, she also has another child. She found love again for a little bit, but then this man leaves her and now she has eight children. Um, and this white male doctor comes in and assesses her. And there's a letter that I include verbatim in the book where he says that she's maladjusted, um, that she has a change of personality. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was depressed and going through quite a lot. Um, he judges her for having another child. He also says that she, quote unquote, is imagining being discriminated against. So this white man says this black immigrant woman is imagining being discriminated against. He diagnoses her with dementia precox, and this is enough to put her in an institution against her will for 25 years of her life. But like you said, despite that tragedy, she is eventually released and she lives for another 25 years. And she uses this time to get to know her children again, to get to know her grandchildren, to tell them her story and to continue to be that voice of, yep, I've gone through this and it was awful. Um, but how do we change our circumstances for our people? What is really unfortunate, as you were describing, again, what I had read in your book about how they judged her, um, unfortunately, some things remain the same. Today, that still happens. And the number of Black mothers, Black women who have to deal with those similar type of perceptions. And that judgment, yeah. she And part of it came from welfare workers invading her privacy, and she again, would not kind of cower to them. She would say, you're invading my privacy. I know how to raise my children. Um, but so many women of color have felt this, that they feel judged when they are receiving the care that they are entitled to as citizens of this country. Um, and many come into their lives and kind of look down upon them. I mean, I even felt it actually when I had my son. It seemed that some of the doctors felt that I was maybe too young. Like there's, oh, look, like kind of another black mother, because I have this high pitched voice, I think people think I'm younger than I am. Um, and, you know, they even had these conversations with me around, okay, well, when are you going to start birth control? Um, and I was like, excuse me, I, number one, you shouldn't judge me regardless of how I decided to have this child. But I'm also married, I, I you know, I'm planning this with my husband, you're making a lot of assumptions. But you had to defend yourself. And I shouldn't have to, exactly. And that that is the problem. It shouldn't matter. Uh, how we've come to to this experience and what we've decided. Um, our decisions should be respected, but so much of what comes, and this is a big part of that letter that this doctor wrote, he really judged her for having another child. It was one of the primary reasons she was put away. Yes. Um, Burtis, what would you ask Burtis? I really would have just wanted to see more of her writing. Everyone commented on how brilliant she was, that James inherited his writing from her in all of her letters. She apparently uses this beautiful language and prose. And if I really could ask her one thing, I would want to read the favorite thing that she, she wrote. I guess as a writer, that's something that I would want to see for myself. Um, even when she died, um, 
It just touched me. It really did when you talk about their interconnectedness, even in death. Tell that story about the tombstone. Yes. Uh, and I'll even say, you know, first, all three mothers lived to bury their famous sons. This is a part of the tragedy. Um, two of them buried two of their sons. Bertus buried two of her sons before she passed, and so did Alberta. Um, but when James Baldwin passed away, again, before his mother, he had a space reserved for her next to him so that when she died, she was going to be buried with him. So this, again, clearly speaks to even his awareness of the interconnectedness of their lives, that his mother was his best friend, his first love. You know, throughout his time traveling, he's writing her letters constantly. This is his confidant, his person, his Burtis. Even when he couldn't be in the States, she's accepting awards on his behalf. So their lives are so beautiful. It makes me <laughs> you don't want to cry that he said, I, you know, my dying wish as I pass away is that my mother, when it's her time, that she'll be right next to me. And he knew his influence in the world. It's even knowing people are going to come and visit this grave. And they're not only going to see my name, but they're also going to honor my mother. And so with the tombstone, it's, you know, Burtis in one corner, James in the other, and right in the middle, Baldwin. Here are, here's another question from your audience. Our time Oh, is going, Anna. It's almost, we've been talking almost an hour. I can't believe it. I think it's been five minutes. <laughs> okay, I'm going to combine a couple of questions. Uh, did any of the mothers meet one another? And in your research, did you interview or meet any of their family members, their children, grandchildren, and others? Those are great questions. Uh, no, as far as I know, the mothers never met each other. Um, some of the sons might have met the mothers, so I think it's possible that James Baldwin met Alberta, um, MLK Jr.'s mother, at MLK's funeral. Uh, and I, it's also possible, actually, that Burtis met Martin Luther King Jr. at an event that she was attending with both James and Maya Angelou. It seems like at some point she wanted to, to meet uh, Reverend King and James was like, yes, I'm going to do this for my mother. Um, that's all I know in terms of those connections. And we, we know a little bit of the stories around the sons meeting each other. And I talk about that in the book as well. Um, I wish that the three mothers could have gotten together, though. That would have been <laughs> so powerful. And then in terms of my research and who I was able to speak with, this was complicated and I needed to take it, you know, very carefully and kind of earn my trust with the families. I, one, had the priority of making sure that at least a few family members of each family knew that I was doing this work. Um, that I wanted them to kind of have the opportunity to speak with me, but I didn't want to force them to do so. I became aware throughout this process that these are three families who have been quite injured by authors, scholars, journalists, uh, because of everything they've been through with the famous men. In many ways, they feel erased, you know, as siblings. Um, they feel erased as nieces and nephews. Their whole lives have been dictated by kind of this cloud of who this famous person was to them. But they've also had to deal with misunderstandings of the work of these three men. They have had to deal with people trying to always find the latest scandal about them. It's sort of like, can you let them rest in peace? These are our loved ones. So when I came with even more questions and now about the woman in their lives who was so important, many of them felt the need to protect their stories. They were a little suspicious, didn't really know what I was trying to do with it. So I approached that carefully. The family members that were willing to speak with me, I spoke with. Um, there are a few who would be okay with me mentioning their names. Trevor Baldwin, who was one of 
Bertus Baldwin's grandchildren um, from the moment I wrote to him. He'd written this Huffington Post article about her being James Baldwin's first love and that she was the kind of the oracle of their lives. And when I wrote to him, he was so gracious. We were able to meet in person. He was able to just give me that personal connection to who she was and talk to me about these birthday letters that she would send to all of her children and grandchildren. Uh, So it helped me just fill in a lot of the blanks based off of the other archival research that I'd done. And then with um, the King family, I really couldn't speak to any of them. They were very like, we don't want to talk about this. They were helpful in terms of introducing me to their uh, archival team at the King Institute, which was huge. Um, And Alberta's life has been more documented than the other two, so that was very helpful. But now that the book is out, and I put out a a piece in Time magazine about Alberta King on MLK Junior Day, um, Bernice King retweeted it and asked everybody to pay attention, and like 5,000 people retweeted it. So that was an approval for me that I just felt like I'd made her proud and that that meant the world to me. And then um, with Louise Little and her family, Ilyasa Shabazz was really kind in granting us permission to use the photo on the cover. This was also really complicated to get permission to use all of their faces. Um, and then Atala Shabazz, who's the eldest daughter of Betty and Malcolm, uh, was the one who knew Louise the best. And she also was willing to have a few phone calls with me and gave me some more perspective on things throughout history that we've kind of accepted as fact and that she felt actually maybe weren't exactly how we told them throughout history. So I was able to kind of correct a few things that she felt were important, um, specifically around this uh, kind of accepted notion that Louise was the product of rape. It's something that Malcolm X spoke about, but she believes that her, her father was saying it more as this like larger concept of Somewhere in them, there was rapist blood, but scholars have taken that and said that this is what happened and Luis was the product of this. And so in my book, I make that a little less of a, for sure, you know, understood fact and instead present it more as an opportunity to speak to what could happen to women in that time. So yes, all of the families are aware, uh, but I was, it was a delicate process to summarize. It was very interesting to me Um, As I was reading and preparing for this, and I made this note because you talk about the importance of women and young women need to be nurtured. And what I found was in Louise's uh, story, you said, what about her daughters and her granddaughters? You say that their work in grassroots activism is very apparent. Oh, please tell us. Yes, definitely. I think even honestly with the descendants, we spoke more about her sons, more people. If you know Malcolm X, if you really are a big fan, you've probably also heard of his brothers um, and some of the drama that they had with the nation of Islam. Um, And of course they were carrying forward her and her husband's legacies in many ways, but not enough people focus on the daughters and the granddaughters who in their own right are activists. Um, Her eldest daughter, Yvonne, Woodward started this black self-sustaining community um, where actually Louise passed away. This is where she spent her time kind of seeing a vision of her own fulfilled in her daughter's work where black people are coming together and making their own food, planting their own food, um, hunting, kind of building their own community. And that's where she gets to know a lot of her grandchildren and passes away peacefully and where her ashes are scattered. Um, And her daughter was also one of the first, I want to say like telephone, black telephone operators in the area in Lansing, or maybe it was Grand Rapids, Michigan, that area. 
Um, but and then her granddaughter is really carrying forward. We see it in you know because Malcolm X had six daughters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we see their work so clearly in not only carrying their father's legacy forward, but they also speak to the importance of their grandmother as well. On page one seventy six of your book, you write. In a Black mother's teachings lies a world beyond what currently exists. These lessons defy laws that you say are, that say you are less than. They peek into the future and assure us there are other possibilities, and they make it clear that we are the ones who will usher in change. This is Black History Month. Black History Month 2021, the theme is the Black family. Anna. Talk about the significance of, and specifically how, knowing the stories of Alberta, Louise, and Bertis offer guidance and strategies for today's Black women and Black mothers. Give us just a little drop-down list. In terms of the different things that they provide us, one, they allow us to celebrate each of us who we are in our diversity. I don't want to be a broken record, but they all came from different places, whether it was a small town or big town or outside of the United States. They um, had different approaches to their motherhood, different approaches to their activism, but they all played a crucial role. So it's to celebrate each and every one of us on our journey um, to know that we're a part of a larger movement and we're all contributing to it in our unique ways. That's really essential. Uh, they remind us of the need to be balanced human beings who are willing to tell people, hey, I need help sometimes, or hey, I'm worried about my loved ones, or I feel pain, just like all of you do. And I don't want to carry all of this on my shoulders. So um, I challenge that by telling their stories, by showing their vulnerability, showing how they formed communities around them and didn't try to do everything on their own. And they also teach us, I would say, to going back to something we talked about with Burtis and James, to confront the realities of what we're seeing in our nation. It is painful. We you know, are dealing with these white supremacist mobs attacking our capital and really not receiving or dealing with any consequences as a result. Um, but we also have to think about the fact that Alberta King herself lived through the Atlanta race riots and saw this exact same thing happen in her own neighborhood. And then we have, you know, Reverend Warnock, who becomes one of our senators. So from Ebenezer Baptist Church. So it's this really cool first full circle moment of seeing that progress and appreciating how far we've come how far we have left to go uh, while also being very aware of what's happening around us. And I'll finally say they also give us instruction on how to take care of those around us, how to raise our children to be mindful um, and to see their place in the world very realistically, uh, to understand the circumstances that we're finding ourselves in as a people, um, but to be able to imagine something more. So going back to that, that quote, it's all about helping the world, the world to see things through our eyes. We have to envision something beyond because if we're constantly told that our kids are less than, that we are less than, but we know to that that's not true, then we instead just need everybody else to, to kind of catch up to us. And we constantly do that work to help people reimagine things, going back to your initial quote. Anna, it is an in-forum and Commonwealth Club program tradition to ask all of our speakers the following final question. 
what is your 60-second idea to change the world? Wow. (laughs) I should have been better prepared for that question, but I I love that. Oh, goodness. My 60-second idea to change the world. I guess I would just focus again on going back to something from my childhood that helping more people to recognize that there are so many different ways to live and to love and to believe in this world that we don't need to focus on finding one truth, but finding multiple ones and celebrating our different approaches to that and to living and to finding our happiness. Um, And I think the more that we can acknowledge the differences and celebrate those differences then the better off we can be. I don't know if that fully answers the question, but there's so many different ways of getting to that mentality. And um, it's something that I hope to achieve with my work for years to come. So maybe it's like a 60 second book that I'll write. (laughs) (laughs) I like that idea too. Anna, you were going, you were going to treat us to reading a passage from your book before we go. Please. Yes. Okay. I will read something from the introduction. Well, first I'm going to read the dedication because it's so important to me. This is for all the mamas. You deserve respect, dignity, and recognition. I honor you. I celebrate you. I see you. So those are the first words that you'll see when you open the book. And then now I'm going to read a passage. Okay. When I began writing this book, I wondered what it would be like if I could sit down with Bertus, Louise, and Alberta. I wondered what they were like before they became mothers, what their dreams were, what they cared about, whom they were friends with. I wondered what I would look for if I could follow them for a few days, if I could learn what inspired them and what scared them. I thought to myself, if I could sit down with these three mothers, what would I ask them? I realized I would want to know how they pushed themselves to keep going, even when various factors tried to stop them in their tracks. How Louise held on to her courage, even when her husband was killed. How Bertus stood up to her husband, even when he was abusive. How Alberta saw hope, even after her sons died. I would want to know what advice they would give us after witnessing some of the most transformative moments in American history, and after seeing progress come and go. In the absence of being able to speak with them directly, I am consoled by my ability to study them, write about them, and share their stories. It is time that the world knows their names. Anna, the importance of Black mothers being seen, being celebrated, and being thanked. And hopefully that can happen while they are alive. Thank you so much. Enjoy this book tour and what you are bringing to people. As I said again, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that's the gift that you've given us. Our thanks to Anna Malaka Tubbs for joining us today. Take good care. We encourage you to pick up a copy of Anna's book, the Three Mothers at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Valerie Coleman-Morris. 
Thank you and stay safe. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.